our podcast, Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. Today we, we will provide comments on episode 14, The War Without, The War Within, written by co-executive producer Lisa Randolph. So here's the main plot. The USS Discovery finds itself back in the Prime Universe nine months from the time they unexpectedly ended up in the Mirror Universe. They are forcibly boarded by Federation officers and officials, including Admiral Katrina Cornwell and Ambassador Sarek. The Discovery crew learn that the Klingons are winning the war, having destroyed over one-third of the Federation fleet, and, and they have taken over 20% of Federation territory. The Discovery's mirror counterparts, the ISS Discovery, was destroyed by the Klingons soon after the ship appeared in the Prime Universe. The Klingons are not united. Instead, Klingon houses are wantonly destroying Federation efforts to demonstrate dominance among the other Klingon dynasties. Laurel advises Cornwell, now that the Klingons have tasted their blood, they will not stop the, the destruction until the Federation and its people are annihilated. Michael Burnham turns to Mirror Giorgio for advice since the former Terran Emperor has had success against the Klingons in her world. Burnham subsequently reveals Mirror Giorgio's presence and identity to Sarek and Admiral Cornwell. Desperate to find a way to save the Federation, with Sarek's knowledge, Cornwell places Mirror Giorgio in command of the Discovery under the ruse that she is actually the former captain of the Shenzo. Cornwell claimed Giorgio had been presumed dead, but actually had been held by the Klingons and was recently rescued in a, in a covert operation. Giorgio is now charged with leading a mission to Kronos, the Klingon homeworld, where they are supposed to gather intel in order to destroy key military assets to decisively turn the tide of the war to the Federation's favor. So I tell you, Gary, I thought this was really quite an episode. Again, written by Lisa Randolph. She's also the person who wrote episode 11, The Wolf Inside, mm -hmm. which we will um, reference a little later. Um, so, um, Gary, why don't you talk about, I guess, one of the key uh, attributes of this episode? Okay, so the, for the most part, um, although we've left the mirror universe, we haven't left this sense of mirroring that has been going on all season long. I mean, um, you know, as a plot device, it's kind of created for us these dramatic foils. We've not only been able to look at counterparts of characters from the Prime Universe in the Mirror Universe, but we also have an opportunity, in large part because of that long arc in the Mirror Universe, of seeing a comparison between the Federation and the Terran Empire mm. in very large relief. Um, it's allowed for us to, to look at several things. For example, um, early on in the season, during the first four or five episodes, 
Michael Burnham was shown as an outsider following the mutiny. Um, and so in very much the same way as Vok was presented as a outsider in Klingon society, not only his physical appearance being an albino, being also somebody who was, you know, son of none, he had no house, but also being a very staunch true believer outside of the traditional attitudes of Klingons who are more opportunistic. Um, and so it, it made perfect sense that Early on in the season, when Burnham is brought onto the Discovery, and there's that there's that mess hall scene where she's attacked by some of the other prisoners that were on the prison um, shuttle with her, that we would have a similar scene, although there's no violence, with Vok slash Tyler. He goes to the mess hall, and and the reaction to him is very different to the one that we see earlier on with Michael. Michael has to basically defend herself against an attack and survive. We also see in this episode a mirroring between the parental role of Prime Giorgio and Mirror Giorgio to Ambassador Sarek and how they play off of one another. The responsibilities of raising Burnham in both universes and the closeness that they have. In fact, at one point, Mirror Giorgio says to Burnham, she calls her daughter who is not my daughter. Mm, you right. know, so all so there's right. a lot of that in regards to, to the way that they, both of them are treating the other as if they are the person that they're missing, that they long for. Mm. Um, we also see in regards to Tilly, who has been mentored by Burnham, now becomes a dramatic foil for Michael as well, somebody who has matured throughout, but early on was not in that kind of capacity. And so we start seeing some of the things that um, revealing to, to her, you know, a strength or, or understanding capacity of her abilities, a recognition of her abilities going forward. The Tilly that we are um, introduced to in this episode is not the Tilly who we met who turned her back to Burnham and wouldn't answer her questions about what a black alert was early on in the situation, who lied to her about the assignments of the stations down in engineering, all those things. This is a completely different person. So so um, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Right, let's, right, right. Um, we're going to look a little bit more closely at each of these characters. Right. So, uh, Gary, why don't you start off by talking about Admiral Katrina Cornwell? Now, she's the most one of the most interesting characters because she's been in the background. We've seen she's been reoccurring, mm -hmm. and she's had some impact. She was the one um, reoccurring character who had the most familiarity with Lorca out of everybody that we have been exposed to. She also had a superior position to him. And even though they had, they had a, a relationship be prior to this, and although she had that, the authority over him, he still contradicted her, and we now know why. That makes perfect sense. But, the, but um, with her, we need to first begin with the statement that is expressed by um, Tilly early on. I mean, when she's talking to Michael, she confesses that their current predicament of being back in prime the prime universe and being in on on defense in regards to the war against the klingons that war was not something that tilly thought that she was aspiring to she's telling us about the way in which 
she bought into the ideals of the Federation as exploratory, as explorers, as people who were out for scientific advancement. They were going to be, meet new races of uh, beings. Everything that, that Shatner says in the original um, introduction to the original series. Yeah, that's right. All those things, that beautiful, you know, altruistic ideal of the Federation. Mm-hmm. And what she's been exposed to since joining the Discovery is the exact opposite. Right. She's been put in danger. She's repeatedly found herself. And then going to the, the most extreme example of that is when they go to the mirror universe. That's right. But now they're back in their universe, which they thought was going to be safe, even though there was a war that had been waged. They find themselves in a much more dire circumstance than they were prior to, to leaving. Um, so, so with Cornwell, here you have a woman who has achieved the rank of admiral, but she's a psychologist. So mm-hmm. she came up through the sciences. She's worked hard to achieve that role in what we would categorize as relative, relative speak, uh, peace. There hasn't been any engagement with the Klingons in almost 100 years. They've been able to continue to expand the borders of the Federation by bringing new new species into the Federation, she's done very well. But when we see her first, she force beams over with Sarek onto the Discovery. She has a weapon pointed directly at Saru and demands to know where Lorca is. And before they accept what Saru says, she she orders Sarek to do an unauthorized mind meld on him to, right. to verify his statements. Those are things that she would not, the woman that we initially met is not the person who would have done those things. So something, so, so she has tr- dramatically transformed in the nine months of the war. Um, these all that kind of fall into the, the context of really showing how that her mind has been twisted. So when they are taking the discovery to Starbase One, and they're going to drop off Mir Giorgio there. They get there, and they find out that they can. They have no communication with the sh- with the station. They find out that when they do a scan, the eighty thousand some odd Federation inhabitants. In fact, several members of the remaining um, Federation High High Council are all gone. There's no human bodies. There's no human signatures at all. They're all Klingon. In fact, there's a Klingon house insignia that's been painted on the outside of the star base. And when she is asked what the next order should be, she freezes. Right. She's She freezes because of the loss of life. She cannot believe that because before when she was talking to them about all the losses, you know, she's talking about 2,000 here, 3,000 right, here, right, right. but this is 80,000 people who are presumed dead. And it's 80,000 people at a star base that we that is close to Earth, close to Earth, and would have had civilians on it, right. families, right. you know, right. um, all manners of people. Right. And uh, and they're gone. So so she freezes. Right. Yeah. If it not if it was not for Saru, right. they would have become part of an assault immediately because they were being scanned at the moment from the star base. So. Right. And and Gary, this reminds me of that um, 
Origi uh, original episode, uh, The Deadly Years, when um, you have Commodore Stalker, he takes over uh, the command of the Enterprise from Captain Kirk, because you remember Captain Kirk has aged and well, he feels that he can no longer uh, be in command of it. Well, they they question his faculties. They, he's, yeah. he's He is amongst the group of people on the away team that's been infected by some virus that rapidly ages them. The only one of the away team that didn't ch change was Chekhov. Right. And so, and remember that the Romulans are about to actually destroy the Enterprise. Right, right. And Commodore Stucker says, I don't know what to do. Right, right. You know, right, so he right. just freezes right. because, again, he doesn't have that experience of being in those kind of circumstances. Right. And it's, if it wasn't for uh, the quick-witted action of Kirk, who is aged, whose faculties are not as quick, but he knows what to do, they wouldn't have been saved. And thanks to um, McCoy coming up with the, the right antidote right, immediately. Right, right, of course. <laughs> that allows him to de-age and whatnot. So, so I think that's, like you said, it's very much like what happens to with Saru, right. is that he demonstrates his growth of, as captain. Yeah. Okay, so he's, he's quick-witted, he's astute, he's perceptive. His manner and experiences have highlighted, you know, the qualities of what, what the Admiral is unable to accomplish. Right. And so, in a lot of ways, the Saru we are seeing now is the battle-ready commander. That's right. That he was aspiring to right. early on when, you know, the first time he took on his acting captain... And he had the he had the computer assign certain comparative captains to judge himself by. That's you know? right. He now doesn't need those kind of assistance. He has he understands what to do and how to do it. He's been he's battle ready. So so definitely he's serving as a dramatic foil to right. uh, Admiral Cornwell. Right, and and we should probably explain this. A dramatic foil is in many ways um, a mirror to another character. That's right. It comes from theater, but you can see it also in other forms of literature where one character will be presented in the story with a similar set of challenges That's right. to the main character. And what they will end up doing is their actions, their responses will echo or, or, or have a counterpoint to what the main character will go through. And you see this a lot in Shakespeare. You see a lot in, in other playwrights as well. So we're, what we're thinking is we're seeing how this has been, this this uh, convention has been used throughout the entire season. Mm -hmm. So, well, going along those same lines, let's look at Mira uh, Philippa Giorgio. And, you know, I think if uh, I'm going to compare her to her dramatic foil, who is going to be Sarek, who is okay. Sarek. And so, um, Giorgio summons Sarek to her quarters in this episode after learning of the bond he has with Michael. And, well, she asks him about it. She, you know, she, she first asks um, Michael, you know, the way you look at him, why do you do that? And she explains, oh, you know, he raised me. Mm -hmm. So, um, we find out that Giorgio and Sarek have a lot, uh, uh, several things in common. So first of all, both adopted and raised Michael after the death of her parents. Both really have a deep affection for her. 
both put Michael in the trust of another person for further development after some perceived right. failure on their part. So, for instance, Mira Giorgio entrusted her to Lorca, and you see how that worked out. <laughs> okay. And and also, Sarek entrusted Michael to the prime version of Giorgio. Mm-hmm. However... Um, Georgia, uh, the mirror Giorgio and Sarek differ in that Sarek has really always sought to protect Michael and even saved her life after a Klingon attack, whereas Giorgio was personally willing to kill her own daughter for um, a, a treasonous act. It was, but I, I, I think you, I think you don't, you do her a disservice. I mean, that was at an extreme circumstance, and even though. That yes, she was willing to imprison her her surrogate daughter. Well, and kill her. And kill her. She was yeah. Chop off there her was. Head. Th- you you can't say that there wasn't some level of remorse for that. Or oh, of course. Or, or there was oh, or, or some conflict in that because that's actually what Prime Burnham is able to to work on to get an opening to, to deal with her. Right. Well, you're right about that. There's still another important difference, and that is before Sarek left the discovery, Michael noted a sense of finality regarding his parting words to her. Mm-hmm. He spoke with her about the importance of grace, as well as love in regards to her relationship to Ash Tyler. In fact, the tenor of his talk with her was on a much more intimate level than we have ever previously seen with Sarah. Mm-hmm. His motivation can only be explained by the fact that he did not expect they could survive the war. And thus, he had to tell Michael things he doubted he would have a chance to say in the future. In fact, he tells her, we are at war. Logic dictates that each hour may be our last. In contrast, Giorgio clearly perceives the opportunity posed by the situation. In the hopeless state the Federation finds itself, she can take advantage of the predicament of this predicament to her advantage. She willingly assumes the identity of the prime version of Giorgio because, like Lorca, she is betting the Federation will capitulate to her worldview if she is successful in their quest to crush the Klingon opposition. There's a lot of things in there. I mean, in the scene between Sarek and Mira Giorgio, I, I I rephrase that scene as my kid is better than your kid. Right, right. Because that's basically what it is at the beginning. But because what they're saying is their version of Burnham is better, therefore my parenting worked better that's than right. yours. That's right. But what it gets down to after they after they get beyond the comparisons, they st- is to the logic of the circumstances. And Mira Giorgio has the advantage here. She understands how to wage war against the Klingons. She know she defeated them. She is what 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 was one of her titles? The overlord of the Klingon Empire. That's right. I mean the dreadnought. No, no, that was a dread the dreadnought of the Klingon Empire. She has she's decimated them in her in her universe. And Sarek has no no, he has no options other than to accept her her thinking on how they need to proceed. That's right. So that when he leaves that meeting, although we don't see the finish of it, it's clear that Mira Giorgio has brought him around to her thinking about how they need to approach. And she has the opportunity. She wants to 
get back to her universe. And if she can't, she wants to do what she can to create an environment that's satisfying to her and the way she sees the world, which perfectly makes sense compared, you know, when you think about the opportunistic qualities of Mira Giorgio. Right. Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, she is ruthless. I mean, she's from she's been the emperor of entire empire. Um, that it, where, as Burnham says before, fear is the motivating factor in how people deal with one another. Well, we're gonna yeah uh, yeah we're gonna get, to get that. more into that theme later. But uh, Gary, why don't you uh, also go ahead and talk about uh, Cadet Tilly? So Sylvia Tilly, who again, like I said, the redhead, pimple faced apprehensive scientist that we meet at the beginning, the woman who you know, ignores people and doesn't want to, she's, she's concerned about, you know, her, her, what uh, people snoring. might think about her all the time, mm-hmm. all the time, um, th- has had tremendous growth, you know, over the course of the, the season in this show. And she's become, um, not only is, um, she's become one of Michael's most trusted confidants. Right. And actually has had a number of scenes where she had, she helps advise people, Stamets being one of them, where it makes perfect sense. She really does help. And the compassion that she shows to Vok Tyler um, in that, that mess hall scene is something that Sylvia Tilly wouldn't have done nine to, to, to eight to 12 months ago. Right. So in, sp- in spite of all of the trauma and in, and endangerment they found themselves in, these people are different and, and it's all plausible. It's not something that's just being ha- um, right. shoehorned into the scene. You actually have seen this growth if you've been watching these, right. these episodes over time. Mm-hmm. Um, in episode six, it, it's, it's Tilly who, who sensed the connection between Tyler and Burnham. She's the one who, who thinks that there's something that between them that they, that they ought to pursue. Um, in episode seven, Tilly reassures Burnham that to interact with Tyler on a more personal level is not something that she ought to avoid. Mm-hmm. And by the time the discovery crosses over into the mirror universe as well, we are aware that Michael and Ash's relationship has deeply committed mm-hmm. as it appears to be almost impenetrable, which is what makes it so tragic. And, but it's, but it's Tilly and not Michael who's the first to offer a hand to Tyler, you know? So it's it, like Sarek, she attempts to appeal to those human qualities within Michael that uh, she believes will help her heal. I mean, well, helped, um, well, well, help, well, help, uh, Tyler, heal. Tyler to heal. Right. Right. And, t- t- and Tilly tells, <clears throat> Tilly tells her that Tyler finds himself in a uniquely difficult situation, which is the reason why she's advising that he, that Burnham go and talk to him as well to address it. Even if it's just the, to break things off Finally, she needs to have that meeting with him so as to make it a clean break. That's right. So, uh, so that so I think I want to now get into the whole Burnham Ash Tyler uh, issue sure. because this subplot is definitely the emotional heart of this episode, and you know, quite heart wrenching. So, um, so anyways, after Laurel 
excises Vox's mental emotional being from Tyler's body, he still finds himself to be a very troubled soul. He has retained Vox's memories and feels deep remorse for having served as a vessel for a Klingon spy, uh, for killing Dr. Kolber, for jeopardizing the Discovery's mission several, actually several times. And also he uh, feels deep remorse for his attempt to murder Michael. As stated in episode 11, The Wolf Inside, Michael serves as his tether. It was her love for him that kept Ash Tyler at the forefront and kept Vox submerged beneath his consciousness for so long. Tyler needs Michael's continued love and support to discover who he is to become and also, as we were saying, to heal. However, despite the counsel of Sarek and Tilly, the hurt and sense of betrayal Michael has experienced will not allow her to exhibit any sort of mercy toward Tyler, even though she admits she does love him. She tells Tyler, I know you could not be blamed for Vox's actions, but I felt your hands around my neck, and I looked into your eyes, and I saw how much you wanted to kill me. The man that I loved wanted me dead, and no matter how hard I try, when I look at you now, I see Vox's eyes. I see him. The crew may have put it behind them, but I can't. So then, you know, so Michael says this, and again, it is a heart-wrenching scene. Uh, Michael then provides Tyler with advice to help his recovery. That supposedly stems, she says, from her own journey in finding and trying to find redemption after initiating events which led to the Federation Klingon War. She tells Tyler, after the Battle of the Binary Stars, I was so lost. I had to stay with myself. I had to work through it. I had to crawl my way back. Still not there, but trying. That kind of work, reclaiming life, it's punishing. It's relentless. It's solitary. It's not easy, but you can cope. Now, this dialogue once again demonstrates Michael's fatal flaw, and that is she's uh, emotionally immature. Besides feeling lost after being convicted for mutiny, she is not truthful about her key to recovery. It was certainly not a solitary initiative. She was helped by Saru, Sarek, memories of Giorgio, Tilly, and even Lorca. Moreover, she depended heavily on Tyler, who, in Episode 7, she confesses her attraction to him, comes through a recognition of the level of sacrifice and suffering he's endured, yet still, he maintains, she says such dignity and kindness, which she says, I find him intriguing. And also in episode 11, she said of Tyler, you remind me of everything good. Michael accuses Tyler of not coming to her to let her know if he could no longer handle the mental problems he was experiencing. However, that expectation was especially unrealistic and unnecessary. 
While she did not know the cause until later, she was well aware of his suffering and that he was no longer fit to hold position of chief security officer. Her refusal to bring his condition to the attention of her superiors jeopardized the safety of the crew, yet she covered it up. Um, she covered up for him time and time again. Also in episode 11, she admits how much she relied on Tyler, the way he had depended on, on her. Just before Vok fully reveals himself to her, she confesses to, you know, the personage of Tyler. You said I was your tether. I need one too. Right. Uh, this proves that Tyler is correct when he accuses uh, Michael of breaking their relationship because she is looking for an, an excuse to end it. She clearly does not want to place herself in such an emotionally and psychologically vulnerable position again and, run, and runs from any responsibility to aid her former lover. Well, it's part of her delusion, her self-delusion. I mean, she is not completely comfortable with how she expresses emotion. And in fact, if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. When she is a child, she's completely indoctrinated with Vulcan you know, logic and philosophy. And so all the emotions are designed to be submerged. But she's a human being. She's not a Vulcan. There, she doesn't have the um, decades or centuries of, of, of training that has allowed you to succumb, succumb your emotional responses to the world. Okay, so... When so it's really just a temporary fix. You know, to, to really get her over the trauma of losing her parents... And it is, uh, and also the trauma, the attack that almost took her life. Well, you look, at, you look at what we've been shown. All the moments of of um, high emotional intention, intensity in her life that we've seen when she was denied going to the Vulcan expeditionary group, um, the uh, the encounter with the Vulcans at the Battle of the Binaries. Um, and several other events throughout the course of this season, we see that her reactions are not always logical, or or she's unclear as to how much logic and or or emotion is playing in the decision making that she's That's going right. through. And I think it's because her emotional journey was stunted as a child. That's right. And so even though she spent seven years with humans, she's done that with the assumption that her responses are all emotion are all Vulcan mm. and therefore based on logic. And when she has been confronted with real emotional um, distress, she's responded, but she's responded as a younger level uh, human. You see what I'm saying? Uh, yeah, oh yeah. Definitely. And so that's played in, mm -hmm. that's, play, that's actually been part of the tension of, I think, of her character throughout the entire run of the show. Oh, definitely. And so this moment here with Tyler, which again, mirrors the scene when he finally reveals himself as Vok and he tries to kill her. Right. Her vulnerability is naked in a, in a level that, mm -hmm. that Michael has never been That's right. in her entire life. That's right. You know, and so this is completely unfamiliar to her. That's right. That's right. So he's, in some ways, he's asking something from her that she's unable to give him right now. She doesn't have the capacity because she doesn't have the experiences on which the uh, response would be built. That's right. That's right. So um, let's, 
we could talk about this on and on yeah. because I really enjoyed this. So, uh, but but let's, uh, Gary, why don't you go ahead and talk about crisis of ideals? Okay, this is something that we've been discussing amongst ourselves mm -hmm. over the course of the season. But if you think about it, and and I and I have to say this, part of the thing I think. Early on, fans of Star Trek reacted to with the show was that they kept saying, if if I'm if I'm not correct, that this show Discovery wasn't Starfleet enough. That there were a lot of things about it that didn't respond to Starfleet, and I think that in itself or strike Star Star Trek philosophy. Right, 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 right. And I and I think that it itself was the main tension designed by the writers That's right. to address throughout the entire right, season. Right, it's intentional. Yes, it is, it is intentional. <laughs> so, this, so, so what you see really is this crisis of ideals. With each Star Trek series, you really have had a group of high-vaulted ideas being presented to you about the perfection of the future. Mm -hmm. That a show like... Star Trek that was started in the middle of the most one of the most volatile decades in this in this country's history shows that we've addressed issues of race that we've addressed issues of poverty that we've addressed issues of inequality and and we have been able to galvanize ourselves as well as other alien species together in an organization to explore we don't necessarily go out to attack one another mm -hmm. or to, or to conquer but we willingly open our hands to welcome other species into the Federation. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that is the ideal all the shows are based on. Mm -hmm. When we are confronted with conflict, we respond, but we are not, we're, not the, we're not the instigators of it, or so we think. That's right. So a lot of things in this show, really all the events in this show basically pivot around Michael's decision to mutiny against Captain Georgia when you think about it. No mutiny, no Klingon war, etc. But the putting but we can't necessarily put the blame on Michael because that's not entirely true. Takuvma's followers and he, and he were intent on starting a war with Federation. That's right. And and in a, in the cause of creating a Klingon unity and cultural per preservation. Mm -hmm. You have to understand that when you are explorers that exploration is going to mean that you're going to confront other people, different points of view and different different ways of life. The exploration, if you think about it in in our world, is actually more of a conquering. Mm -hmm. That you bring what you your culture to bear with other people. And most of the exploration that was done on this planet it was actually a conquering of peoples. Right. It was a, it was a and their culture. And their Conquer, culture. Right. It was a, it, it, and that's whether we're talking about the English going into Ireland or Scotland, or we're talking about exploration into the New World or in Africa. That's right. It is really about conquering. And so although Star Trek puts a much more positive light on it, at the heart of it is... You're subjugating somebody else's culture to satisfy your need to expand your your influence around the planet. You can expand that when you think about an entire universe when when that's being done. That's right. So the Federation 
would have eventually been drawn into a war with the Klingons, whether or not Michael had acted to try to take control of the Shinju That's anyway. Right. Because the actions of exploration were definitely a threat to Klingon culture. It was a perceived threat it was, to Klingon culture. It was a threat. It was a threat. Whether it was intended to be so or not, it was a threat. Okay. Still, at the heart of this controversy is the is the main debate of shooting first. That's what Michael suggested to Giorgio. Um, and that is something that goes against the principles of what Starfleet is based on. We're the good guys. That's the perception of the Federation. We're the good guys. We don't shoot first. Right. Because you, you, you're going to talk. You're right, going right, to use right. diplomacy. Right, right. And what is the, what, what is the statement that the Klingons find ridiculous that, that Federation members always say? We come in peace, right? So they find that incredible because their action of bringing peace is, in a sense, opening up the door to assimilation. Or at least that's what they that's fear. That's what they fear. That's what they fear. Right. Right. Um, and we learn, so we learn from Sarek that the Vulcans had to employ a strategy of shooting, of shooting first. first to get the Klingons off of their front porch. So naturally, although it goes against the protocol employed in dealing with most species, that's something that, that they want to do. That they had to do. That they had to do, right, right. And yet, even after heavy, heavy losses during this war with the Klingons, we see that those high principles of the Federation can be bent or broken if need be. And this is starting to happen even before we jump into the mirror universe. Right, right. We are told that Lorca, in charge of the discovery, has been given broad discretionary powers That's right. on how he needs to execute strategies towards winning this war. You know, and under those powers, he does the following. He uses a tardigrade, which we realize is a sentient being against its will as a navigator of the spore drive. And even the, and, and it's also destroying its health. I mean, right. it, it could right. die, it, it and die. it's about to die from its use, but they don't care. He allows Stamets to g- genetically alter himself to replace the tardigrade as the navigator in an act that violates the eugenics registration. Um, restrictions that exist in the Federation. Right. He hands over a convict and smuggler, Harry Mudd, to his prospective father-in-law and prospective wife instead of arresting him and taking him into custody for espionage. That's right. His intent when he comes to the Discovery is to find out what its secret weapon is and pass that information on to the Klingons. That's espionage. Right. And instead, as opposed to being put in jail, he's forced to marry a woman. Right. And that's a decision that Lorca makes. Right. And that's why well, he allows it. That, well, yeah. yes, yes, yes. But he puts that in motion. That's right. He re- you see Lorca repeatedly disobeying direct commands from senior officers if he doesn't agree. That's right. And then he chooses not to pursue a rescue mission when Admiral Cornwell is captured by the Klingons. That's right. All of these things. And again, I want to emphasize this thing about Lorca. The reason why somebody from the Mirror Universe, a Terran commander, finds himself so easily adapted into this into the circumstances of the Prime Universe is because he's able to capitalize on the circumstances of at war. That's right. He does, and and Giorgio, Mira Giorgio, is doing the exact same thing now. 
So he's taking advantage of those those principles, those high ideals that they that this federation puts out there that they say they, that they're all about. Mm-hmm. And he has seen how, based on the the seriousness of the circumstances, they can they can be bent, they can be broken, they can be ignored if necessary. Mm-hmm. So when the discovery jumps back into the mirror universe, uh, bu- jumps over into the mirror universe in episode eleven at the beginning. Um, of the wolf inside, we get this voiceover from Burnham where she does this critique of the ruthless ways of the Terran Empire. Um, she observes that the at the heart of all of their actions is a sense of fear. Mm-hmm. They they are motivated by fear because they never know when they might be usurped, and so they act they act initially to make sure they overcome their enemies before their enemies can overcome them. That's right. In her voiceover, you hear a sense of the Starfleet's superiority, the arrogance of the Star Starfleet's uh, point of view, clearly being communicated in every statement. And she should; she believes in the ideals of the Federation. Mm-hmm. They are the ideals of the good guy. You can hear that sense of superiority um, throughout. She has, and, and even when she's given two opportunities to kill. An opponent kills somebody who is attempting to cause her harm. The one with Vok, the lover that has now turned on her. Mm -hmm. And then with Lorca, she chooses not to kill them. That's right. And she has weapons in the mirror universe that have two settings. Kill and disintegrate. They don't have killings. They don't have stun and kill. That's right. <laughs> right? That's right. right. So these so so there's so there's no way that if she shoots, he's just gonna be you know, knocked out. Right. He's dead. He's dead. He's dead with a body or he's dead with nothing. Right. You know, so that's it. So, and and even when she's talking to Lorca, she admonishes him for setting all these actions into motion. She claims, she tells him that the Federation would have been willing and happy to help him get back if he had just asked. That's right. She says, that's who Starfleet is. That's who I am. Mm-hmm. So she is all in on this idea of the power of the, the positive ideas of the Federation, what the Federation is built on. And yet, when we return to the Prime Universe, we encounter Starfleet officers, including Admiral Cornwell, behaving in a manner that is very unlike the Federation. They're doing a force beam in onto the ship. By the we, As I said before... They've, there's a forced uh, mind meld with between Sarek and Saru to verify the information. And by the end of the episode, we see those same representatives of Starfleet con- contradicting everything Michael has claimed the organization is about. In fact, in the last scene of this episode, she reveals it reveals a decision that's been made that is at most conflict with the stated beliefs that Federation and Starfleet are based on. Mm-hmm. You know, all of this is indicating that, in large part, the fe- that the Federation is suffering from the similar sense of fear motivating all of its actions. That's right. That was that we saw in the Mirror Universe. Mm-hmm. So this Federation, this the the remnants of it, are really in the same position that predicated the development of the Terran Empire. Yeah. And I think that's what Giorgio 
Mira Giorgio senses. Oh, she senses. Uh, she said, I'm going to take advantage of this. Yes. I'm jumping on this. It's really clear. She knows exactly where these people are in a desperation at which. And she knows how to handle that. She knows how to manipulate that. But I think also that was what Lorca, that's why Lorca was successful. Right. I, I want to talk a, a, a little bit about some odds and ends, some you know, characteristics of this episode that uh, we wanted to point out. Uh, so first of all, uh, I want to talk about all the side eyes that you mm. saw in this episode. Mm. Um, in fact, I think, Gary, you're the one who called it. This was side eyes central. Yes, it was, baby. It was, there was a lot of eyes, you know, eyes slanting towards one another between Michael and Saru in that last scene. Okay, so let me go, go through those for mm-hmm, a minute. Mm-hmm. So, so for those of our listeners who don't know what a side eye is, um, it is... Um, um, a gesture that especially African-Americans have perfected, I want to say. <laughs> and what it is, if you want to, you may have heard the expression throwing shade or, you know, what, what you're doing is um, you're, you're basically saying, mm. You're commenting on something without saying anything. Without saying anything. And so your eyes are actually doing all the commenting. Yeah. And you usually are targeting it at one or two other people who can who have your who are in your point of view. Right, who believe what so, you what you try to right, say. Right. But no one else can see it. And when I when I looked when I went back and I was watching the episode, it seemed that actually a lot of the side eyes in this episode re- revolve around Cornwell's actions. So mm, mm. so let's just look at that. So for instance, Michael gives a side eye to uh, Saru when Admiral Cornwell disintegrates Lorca's bowl of fortune cookies. Yes, out of anger. Right. <laughs> and then in another scene, Michael and Mira Giorgio trade side eyes after speaking with Admiral Cornwell in Giorgio's quarters. And and there's another scene where in the, where you see the bridge crew, they're giving side eyes after Cornwell appears incapacitated right. and Saru must give the command to get the ship out of harm's way. Yeah, because they don't know who's in charge right this they moment. They don't know. Well, <laughs> they know that she's not doing right, a good job right, of right, it. Right, 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 right. And then the last side eye that I saw in the episode was between... Um, uh, Saru and Michael, after Cornwell introduces, you know, the former emperor as the newly appointed captain of the Discovery, and you know, Georgia walks in, they both give the side eye to each other. So, uh, so uh, we really uh, particularly like the use of that gesture. Also, the other out of it is that Cornwell makes this. Um, statement about my Gabriel is dead because mm-hmm. what she's saying is that she knows that um, the prime version of Lorca was uh, sent over to the mirror universe in exchange for the mirror Lorca in some kind of transporter you know malfunction that well, she assumes that she assumes and that she has no proof of it right he's nowhere near right there's no evidence that he is back here so we don't know. And so she thinks, oh, from what you told me about the mirror universe, he's, I'm sure he couldn't survive. Well, she has nothing to base that on. Right, she has nothing. Uh, so even if he is in the mirror universe, he could have survived. And our guess is he's probably going to show up. I, I find it hard to believe that a version of Lorca was found in the mirror universe and no one captured him and brought him to 
the emperor. But he could be hiding in it. And again, my theory well, that's is what that. I'm, but what yeah. I'm saying is that I'm not didn't mean to interrupt you. Yeah. But, but my point is that. I find it hard that if he was seen, that right. no one knew right. what Lorca looked like. Right. If he is the, if he's the, he was the right, right hand. Right, of he's the, the right right hand man of the emperor. That's right. You know his face. Right. So it's hard for him to hide in the Terran Empire, and now we know that he was, uh, he was, uh, he was escaped. That that people That's were going right. after him. So it's just hard to believe that. He would be able to hide, and no one, you know, unless he wasn't there any longer. Well, and again, my theory is is that he and Muir Burnham hooked up, and they're hiding somewhere. So, but anyways, time will tell. Yes, it will. Time will tell. We won't know in this season, but I think in next season, I'm not gonna be surprised if those two show up. So, anyways, there's so much to talk about. We have even gone over the usual time we spend with these podcasts, but again. We could talk on and on. But uh, so we should really bring this podcast to a close. And we look forward to the series finale, uh, the season finale, I should say, episode 15, entitled, Will You Take My Hand? All right. So now it's your turn. Uh, we want you to communicate with us. And in fact, if you could help us out, this podcast is on iTunes. We have no ratings. If you are interested, and are willing, we'd appreciate you giving us a rating on iTunes. It allows us actually to um, go up in the ratings and hopefully pick up new new subscribers, people who might be interested in the show. Um, if you want to just talk to us, again, you can always contact us on Twitter, at Star Trek AOD, or at our Facebook page, facebook.com, Star Trek AOD, and let us know... How how long can Mirror Giorgio survive in her role as the Discovery's captain? We don't think it could last too long. <laughs> I, I think I think there's a short shelf shelf life on that product, if you know what I'm saying. How long will it take the Federation to realize they cannot trade their morals for those of the Mirror Universe just for the momentary um, achievements? Um, Will Michael learn to forgive Ash as well as herself for loving him? And, and what will be the, the season cliffhanger? We're anticipating with all of the twists that they've given us through this entire season that hopefully if they, if they stick the landing, this cliffhanger going into season two is going to be a huge one. And, and, and one other caveat with that, this, these episodes here were what they were working on when the show premiered. Mm-hmm. They were concluding episodes 14 and 15 right when the show premiered. Mm-hmm. So they they knew what they had and they knew what they were committing to. So I'm I'm susp- I'm anticipating something very exciting in this last oh, episode. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely the well, definitely the trailer looked good. So the trailer didn't look good. Okay. But until then, live long and prosper.